Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG B20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win $25,000. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participants. Stores. Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to B-Ball Breakdown. I am very pleased to bring on our show Brian McCormick, the author of a terrific new book called Fake Fundamentals and also a former pro basketball coach from Europe. So Brian, thanks for coming on the show and you know, let's jump right into it. What, what inspired you to write this book that's called Fake Fundamentals? Uh, first, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, I actually wrote this book. It kind of started as a joke. Um, and honestly, the first chapter that I wrote of it, I think I started in about 2008 or 2009 because um, I'd written a couple books around that time. And uh, at that time, it was, gonna, it was originally called like the 10 myths in basketball or something like that. Um, and I just kind of left it in my folder that I have all my books in on my computer and kind of ignored it, did some other things. And so then this year, I kind of came back to it and and uh, actually, I believe it was uh, on Twitter, Sefu Bernard from Canada, um, he, he saw one of my tweets that I tweeted about fake fundamentals. And he's, he and somebody else, I think, went back and forth. They're like, yeah, Brian should really write a book called Fake Fundamentals. And uh, so then I was like, all right, let's go see what I had on the, in, in the old folder and let's see if there's something there. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how it came about. Um, and it was, it was, for the most part, it's kind of a reaction to some coaches that I've worked for, worked against, um, you know, practices that I've seen um, over the years, um, and just kind of the frustration that I have with some of the things that go along um, or the things that happen in, in coaching and the lack of um, analysis, for, for lack of a better word, but just the lack of critical thinking that I think happens when, when coaches are putting together practices um, and so forth. So that's kind of the, the background story and then also really the, the genesis of the idea. So, you know, what kind of reaction do you end up getting from a lot of these traditional coaches? Because certainly the drills that they like to run, they've learned and were, you know, it was drilled into them from their coach, from their coach, some of whom were probably really big names and people who really, you know, know the game. What kind of reaction do you get from those kind of people? Uh, so far, I haven't gotten any reaction to the book from those types of coaches because I think my market is small enough that the people who buy my books tend to be people who believe the same things and kind of anticipate what they're getting uh, from me. Um, but my blog that I, you know, that I've written over the last, you know, whatever ten, fifteen years, um, tends to get seen by more people outside my circle, if you will. Um, and so I have, over the years, gotten plenty of emails from people telling me that I don't know what I'm talking about and you know this famous coach does the opposite so you're wrong because this famous coach has won X number of games I did a I did a clinic I went and did um, in Nike a Nike camp in China one year and this this was probably back in like 2006 I think um, and I was and we were for some reason I was given the defensive station Almost always when I'm coaching somewhere, I do offense. But they gave me the defensive station. The other coaches there um, were younger than me. They're predominantly guys who were just finishing playing and were looking to start coaching, really. Um, and uh, so I was teaching one thing. And for some reason, there were four stations, and we had two defensive stations. So I was doing defense on one court. We had four courts side by side. I was doing it on one end, and then there was another uh, coach doing it on the other end. And the coaches, um, the Chinese coaches that were there watching, 
they watched some of his and then they made their way down. And eventually they came down to where I was doing mine. And when we finished, they came up to me and they're like, how come, how come you're teaching it differently than him? And I was like, well, I don't know what he's teaching, but this is what I do. And uh, it was the step slide. So one of the chapters from the book, basically. And uh, so they're like, well, you need to come down. We need to talk to the other coach because we think you're right, but he says that you're wrong <laughs> kind of thing. And so we went down and their, their response to me, so in terms of the step slide and, and uh, more or less that, you know, the whole you should never cross your feet and, you know, you need to take this big step, small slide, big step, small slide, you know, as we've all been taught in our childhoods. Um, their rationale that the, the, the other coach that was doing it on the other end, his rationale that he was correct was, that's how his dad taught it, and his dad had won 500 games as a junior college coach, so it had to be true. Um, and I challenged them. I challenged them. I said, look, guard me. I'm like, you guys are much faster than I am. Like, you know, you guys are all D1 players. You know, I was almost 30 at the time, you know, out of shape, et cetera, et cetera. Was never a D1 player anyway. And uh, I'm like, guard me. You know, and as soon as I got half a step, you know, they would drop and they would do exactly what I was saying. They're like, no, I didn't. I was like, no, you really did. You hit and turned, you cross over, that's how you catch up. No, I step slide. No, videotape this, right? Videotape it. Like, I will show you that what you think you do and what you actually do are two different things. And it doesn't matter how much you've been taught to do this because it's just not a natural movement. And when you're forced to go fast, you can't do a slow movement which essentially a step slide is a slow movement. And it looks perfect when you do it in slow motion, which is when I, when I started writing this book and, and previous books that I've written, I thought back on my childhood because I had, you know, my coaches, I especially I went to this really good fundamental camp up in, outside of Sacramento um, for a bunch of years when I was, you know, a child and then a teenager. And then I worked at it uh, when I started coaching. And I just remember it's one of the, Basketball things I remember most from my childhood is sitting out on these outdoor courts in the 100-degree heat, you know, you know, stance, slapping the ground, getting our defensive stance, step slide. And basically, you know, just one big step and then just drag your foot. Big step, drag your foot. Uh, and just doing that for, you know, 10, 15 minutes at a time. And, uh, and that's, that's – yeah. And in slow motion – it makes sense because, you know, as they demonstrate in, in slow motion, you know, if you bring your feet all the way together, if you, if you step with your trail foot first and bring your feet together, you haven't gained any ground, you know, in slow motion, you know. But once you start moving quickly, it's different. It's like comparing, uh, you know, how you walk and you're, uh, you know, to how you run. You're going to – if you have to sprint, you know, 20 meters as fast as you can – you're not going to use the same exact technique that you do when you walk. It's different. Well, let me interrupt you for one second because I think I want to make sure everyone's clear. Uh, you're advocating not to do the traditional sliding method that we do. And by the way, what you're describing, I t teach a different kind of slide where you don't drag the back foot. You simply right. are, are using your ankles and your lower legs to move quicker. But what you're describing is what I think what we call the turn and run which is what, we've, what I picked up from Gergovich over at UNLV because I think for the very same reason, he saw all these really good athletes able to keep up with ball handlers because they're running and they're turning and they're crossing their feet across as they turn to run. And so is that how you describe it basically is that you're, you're talking about crossing over because you need to turn and run and ride the guy out of, uh, out of the position he wants to be in? So, yeah. So to me, there's three movements on defense, you know, when you're guarding the ball, let's say. So first there is – what is termed a step slide or a defensive slide, okay? And, and I agree with you. I think we're along the same lines in how we would teach that. It's not that I don't ever step slide, but I think um, as opposed to a step and a drag, as I was taught, you should be pushing off your back foot. Right. Uh, so it's almost like you're pushing. Once you take that first step, after the first step, you're basically pushing off both feet. Yeah. If that makes sense. Um, so that's the first. And as long as your defensive player is in front of you, not going full speed, going laterally, you're fine. You can, you can step slide, push step, defensive stance, whatever, however you want to term it, you're fine. Once they get half a step on you, so they're going towards their basket, you can't step slide fast enough to stay with somebody who's sprinting you know, full speed or close to full speed. 
So there's the transitional phase, which is a crossover stepping, and then there's the turn and run. Mm -hmm. So to me, if you do it well, you should be able to crossover step and return and get back in front in one or two steps in many instances. Now, if you're beat completely, then you have to turn and run and you have no choice. Mm -hmm. But when you crossover step, so if you turn and run, you're basically turning your hips all the way around uh, so that, you know, if, let's say that you're, you're, uh, the offensive player is going baseline to baseline. Mm -hmm. Now you're basically facing the same direction. You're going baseline to baseline. Your hips are completely turned towards the basket. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're crossover stepping, you're keeping your hips squared for the most part towards the defensive player as you would if you were going to step slide, but you're crossing over your trail leg in front of your, uh, lead leg, then taking another step with your lead leg. So you're just able to cover more ground with the crossover step, but you're not quite as fast as you would be with a true sprint, but you also haven't turned your hips all the way. Because if once you turn your hips, let's say you're in a, in a half court situation, as soon as you turn your hips, you know, if that person stops, you know, you're dead. You're never going to really be able to contest that shot because you have to turn all the way back around. Whereas if you're, if you're crossover stepping and your hips are directed towards the player and he stops, you take one more step, get planted, and then I can turn and contest right here instead of having to turn my whole body around mm -hmm. to contest. You know what's weird about this, like the, uh, the slide stepping thing is when I started running my program, and what we would do is we work on slide, slide, turn and run, slide, slide, turn and run, just almost for conditioning to kind of get the muscles built up in that in those in those uh, in your legs. But what I started seeing was like some of the guys, not everybody, but about like a quarter of my players were doing this weird what you're describing, which I guess was taught. I wasn't taught to me when I was growing up, but the notion of yeah, you drag the back foot. But then when you start getting is you get this herky-jerky thing with your whole upper body too. And I'm thinking if you're trying to do that as fast as you can, your whole world is just going to be shaking like an earthquake. And you're never going to be able to, to, to have a good, clear focus on the ball. So I always thought like that. And, and, they, and it was clear that it was technique. Like they, this was something they were yeah. taught. And I, it was a hard thing to try and get them to not do. And again, these kids had learned it from coaches they probably respected, and they don't have any reason to necessarily uh, to disagree with that. So uh, I can understand why this would be sort of a hard thing that you know flies in the face of what we've been learning. But without question, uh, you know, I think what we can also point to are things like football, right? Football has a lot of these motions that they need to be able to do, right? Yeah, that's one of the that's one of the um, one of the ways that I kind of came upon this is when. So when I was in high school, I was known as a bad defensive player, um, and I was, and I've, from the time I was young, I've always been considered slow. So then I got to college and I started playing pickup games at UCLA, and the players that I'd play pickup games at UCLA for the most part were better than almost anybody I played in high school, um, and partly because I was willing to get scored on and I wasn't scared to be humiliated. I got a reputation as being somebody who would actually play defense in pickup games. And the, the, the biggest switch physically was I, I basically tried to get away from anything that I was taught defensively and I just moved as fast as I could. And you know everybody else says, well, if you cross your feet, you're going to trip. If you cross your feet, you're going to trip. And so I was like, well, I'm guarding this guy. His nickname was Iverson. I have no idea what his real name was, but he was really good. He played at, I know he played at least one year at Santa Monica College. I don't know if he ever went anywhere after that. Um, but they called him Iverson because he was super quick. There was another guy that I, that I was friends with at the time who was just a student at UCLA but had played against, I think he had played against Stephon Marbury in high school. And he's like, dude, this guy's as quick as Marbury. So, and I'd be guarding him and, and there's no way I'm going to step slide and stay in front of him. So if I fall on my face tripping because I cross my feet, it's the same thing. He still scores anyway. Mm -hmm. So I started crossing my feet and I'd like look at other sports because I was friends. You know, I used to go to all the UCLA soccer games when I was in school and I'd watch how they were defending, you know, and I'd watch, you know, the football team and how cornerbacks, you know, they start and then they have to turn and sprint. What are they doing? And, you know, Nowhere in no other sport did I ever see even volleyball players who uh, you know have to cover typically a much smaller distance. They don't you know step slide there. You know they take one big step and they get there. You know um, you know like a blocker going to the outside to block. It's you know most people that I've seen teach you know one big crossover step and then you're there. 
you know, and you get up and block. And so, you know, nowhere else did I see this kind of funny step sliding movement. It was just unnatural. And so I just kind of ignored it. And I looked at other sports and said, okay, what do they do? Oh, they cross their feet. Oh, they do this. Let's yeah. see if I can try to do this in pickup games and see if I'm any better. Let me ask you this, because one thing I always try to clean up uh, on the defensive end, when we would go from a – when you're in one – like let's say you're waiting for the offense to come down. So you're in your stance, you're ready to go, and you have to suddenly go to your left laterally very quickly. Um, I would have players who would step with the right foot to the right as a negative step and then go to, the, to their left. And I would drill that. No, it has to be a push-off and a step with the left foot in that direction first. Now, I got good results when I was able to eliminate that. But that said, I've talked to a lot of um, you know, motion guys, uh, guys who study you know, the, 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 uh, the what, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, uh, the mechanics. Um, and they insist that, that's a, that negative step is important and that you need to have it. So what are your, what's your take on that? Um. There are differences in terms of, of uh, you know, exactly how I am if I'm, you know, completely, you know, stationary versus I would, I would try to be in movement. I would never try to wait in a stationary position. So that's the first thing. Um, but the second thing is, yeah, typically that negative step that everybody always talks about, um, you're, it's your body's way of, of putting yourself in a better position to push off. So if I'm in a regular stance you know, kind of my, my, uh, feet right under my shoulders, you know, nice, nice balanced stance. I don't have a huge angle to push laterally. So if I want to go to my left, I have to do something to create the force to go in that direction. So that means I either have to move my knee way inside of my foot by staying in the same position. Okay. To try to create a little bit of an angle in my, uh, in my lower body, okay, or I have to take that step out to the right, and now I've created an angle in this direction so that I can push to the left, if that makes sense. It's yeah. much harder not being able to demonstrate. Um, <laughs> so, so in that respect, I would never try to get rid of that negative step because it's your body's natural reaction to what you're trying to get it to do. And for the most part, your body's natural reaction tends to be correct. Okay. It's the same thing. If, 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 I'm, if I'm standing in a square stance and you tell me to run as fast as I can forwards, the first thing I'm going to do is take that split step back. Right. And all I'm trying to do is create an angle. I'm trying to create that angle where I can push forward because if I'm in a split stance, I have no angle from which to push. You know, it's funny because I had this discussion with somebody else who's a, uh, Alan Stein, who's out, who's a real good, you know, uh, uh, trainer in this league. And I think what we ended up, because it was not an argument, but we were kind of, you know, talking about this. I think what, what, what I realized through this conversation was that if you have to go forward or back, it's, it's vital to have that step because there's no way to generate that. But if you had to go laterally, it felt like we, I could still maintain the way, the way I was coaching it, which was to take the step first and push it off. I guess you're right, though. There is that knee inside the foot, which is almost the same thing. But this is a very nice segue to one of your other chapters, which is when you're talking about the triple threat stance. Because as everyone knows on our show, I'm a huge hop guy. And I became a hop guy after teaching the one-two for, I would say, 12 years exclusively without any uh, – I wouldn't let my players hop if they – you know, I would, certainly wouldn't teach that. But what came out of this as well, and I've spoken to other guys um, and other guys who study the, the, the motion of the body, is the hop ends up being the best way to generate that as well, where if you're in that stance and you quickly hop into that, you're not really doing a negative step. You're simply hopping into that position two inches off the ground, boom, to then explode into the next direction, whether, whatever it is. So talk to us a little bit about how all these things are tying into what you noticed about the triple threat and why you think it's one of the, one of the big fake fundamentals. Okay, well, first to kind of bring the, the negative step and the hop together, basically both of them are using the same thing, which is the stretch shortening cycle, which is essentially what you're training when you're trying to do plyometric training. Okay, so you're trying to use the elastic response um, through your tendon to generate power as opposed to relying strictly on, on the muscle and the force that you can generate there. Um, so, so it's a uh, you know, quicker, more reactive, um, elastic response that can move you 
more quickly, whether it's you know moving laterally or trying to move you vertically into your shot. Um, as for the triple threat, um, you know, I mean, obviously, I was taught that you know my whole life, you know, and and my first kind of uh, negative reaction, I guess, to the triple threat was I was working. I worked at the University of California women's basketball camp um, one year. Again, this is probably a decade ago. Um, it's at least two coaches ago. Um, and it was their elite girls camp. And uh, we spent in the morning, we spent at least an hour at one station doing, you know, triple threat moves, jab, step, go, jab, step, cross, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all from a stationary position, you know, all with the left foot, you know, or strong foot, um, pivot foot. So that afternoon, the because it was the elite camp, so they had, you know, a bunch of their potential recruits were there. And so in the afternoon, they scrimmaged the Cal team. And uh, this was this is how long ago it was. Just the Paris Twins were uh, juniors in high school, I believe. So that's, that's how long ago this was. Um, so they were scrimmaging. I watched about 25 minutes of this scrimmage between the, the Cal players and the, the campers. Not one time did a player make a triple threat move, either the Cal players or the campers. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we spent all this time working on triple threat moves, but nobody ever needs a triple threat move because, one, the only time you need a triple threat move, really, is when you're trying to isolate and go one-on-one. If you catch the ball, let's say off a screen or in space because your teammate drove the middle and kicked out to you and so you have a little bit of space, if you're using a triple threat move, it means that you caught the ball open, held the ball, waited, 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 allowed a defensive player to get to you, and now you're going to initiate and try to figure out what you're going to do on offense. And so in a game, you know, in this scrimmage, that never happened. They either caught the ball, they're open, they shot it. They caught the ball, they're open, they drove it. Or they caught the ball, they're open, you know, they passed it. You know, if, and if they're covered, they caught the ball and they usually passed it. You know, they didn't try to set up and, and make this move. So um, that was kind of the first time where I was like, what are we doing with, you know, spending hours? I mean, I would, and, you know, Cal's not the only camp. Almost every camp I ever went to or worked at uh, when I was younger would spend, you know, a large percentage of their offensive teaching, usually more time on these moves than they would actually spend on shooting. Or finishing, I mean, heaven forbid you teach a layup at a camp, you know, on these triple threat moves that nobody ever used unless they were being selfish. And so that was that was kind of my first reaction. And then, you know, as teams like the Spurs and the Suns and stuff have kind of, um, you know, shown that you can play kind of team basketball and, you know, not just have to isolate your best player on the wing and let them go one-on-one. And as the game has moved away from the basket, you know, and away from post-play, you know, out to more of a perimeter game, um, you know, and as defenses have gotten better, you know, which, you know, everybody credits Thibodeau for that, you know, with the shifting defense and the early help and all these kind of things that, that force teams to have to play faster, you know, and take away the isolations. Now you can see in the NBA level, the best offenses, they almost never triple threat, you know, because if you catch and triple threat, that whole defense is rotated, and now instead of catching and going one-on-one or catching going one-on-oh with somebody rotating to you at the rim, now you're catching and going one-on-five, you know. Mm-hmm. And nobody is good one-on-five. But if you can catch in space for an open shot, you know, especially if you got shooters, I mean, those are the, you know, every good offense you look at in the NBA, that's what they're trying to get is somebody open in space for a quick shot or somebody moving, catch, you know, quick finish, or they're setting up something, you know, an on-ball screen or something that if the defense doesn't help because they're scared about the shooters, that they've got a layup at the basket or they've got the roller, you know, for layup at the basket. You know, none of the good offenses are, all right, let's, you know, pass the ball, you know, everybody spread out, let's take seven dribbles or three jab steps, six dribbles. Those teams just aren't good anymore. You know, it's funny, it's because I, I took all that stuff that you described from when I was a manager at the D1 level, and I was teaching all my kids this, and I thought, this is great, I'm giving them D1 skills at the high school level, this is great. 
But, you know, one of the things that always stuck in my mind, and again, I just want to make this clear, when I was reading the book, this was like you were speaking to my brain and addressing all those things that always bothered me, but never, you know, like, I don't know, I just never could quite, could quite get over the hill of like, well, this is wrong. But we would do the catch the ball split foot, rip through to the right, way, uh, to the right waist, and then I would have him wait for a second and then shoot it. And right. I thought, you know, and that's the hardest thing to do. There's no momentum. There's no nothing. And some of the guys got okay at it. Some of the guys were not. And, again, did we ever, ever shoot that kind of a shot? No. Would I ever want the guy to shoot that shot? No. So I would always wonder, why are we doing this kind of thing? Uh, it, it was always very frustrating. I think that th what you're talking about as well is another one of those things where you're interrupting rhythm in a way. Now, I think the other thing is the defense, your issue with the rip-through also is what the defense is able to do after you rip-through, right? On the, on the ball. Yeah, I mean, I mean, my, my big argument is that essentially you're allowing the defense to rotate, allowing the defense to get to right. you. Whereas if you play right off the catch, instead of going down, now you're playing against a moving defensive player. So whether you want to shoot, whether you want to, you know, freeze them, you know, with a little up fake and go, whether you just want to catch and go, uh, you're going to have a bigger advantage than once you're playing against a defensive, both a defensive player and a defensive team that's set. The natural progression and the question that I would then ask you uh, is: It sounds like what you then what do you teach? Is it do you teach the hop and attacking off of the hop on the catch? It depends which players I'm working with. If I'm working with old like. Uh, Older players, like my team last year, you know, a pro team in Europe, I generally don't change their footwork if they're successful players. Mm -hmm. um, if they're not successful players, then I'll work with them and I'll try to change. Um, and especially under FIBA rules, uh, I definitely prefer catching on a hop to go just because of the way that they call travels and everything like that is you almost have to use a crossover step on your first step. Um, Okay. Now, is that because – why is that exactly? The FIBA, you have to get that ball down before you pick up the, the pivot foot, right? Right. And for whatever reason, I, it was the first lesson that I learned because after I graduated from high school, I was an exchange student in Sweden for a year, and I ended up playing on the team in my town, second division in Sweden. And uh, that's the first lesson. There was an American coach who was coaching the, the first division team. And that's the, the first two things that he told me is like – one, don't even bother using a direct drive because they'll call you for traveling. And two, um, he watched one of my games and I did, you know, the Kobe. I up faked and the guy jumped in the air and I jumped into him trying to draw the foul. He's like, yeah, you're never going to get that call here. By the way, the one thing, because I, I also played a little bit for the University of London's club team when I studied in, in uh, first semester. And the other thing that someone told me right away was when you're running and you catch the ball on the run, if you don't, as a travel. the ball down. If you try and catch it and go, like, it's a travel every time. I think we've seen that in the, in the Olympics with guys like Dwayne Wade, and it was, like, it was frustrating because it seemed like he was doing it. They kept doing it. They were having trouble adjusting to that. Yeah. I, I had that problem um, when I coached in Ireland. A, a guy would do that every time, and they kept calling him for travel. I'm like, I'm like how is that a travel? But, uh, <laughs> but anyway um, – yeah, so so for FIBA, so so that's why you almost have to take a crossover step because they're going to call travel. So you know, if you catch on a one-two, then you're pretty much you know, if you catch left-right, then you pretty much have to go left, uh, you know, on the dribble because if you go right, you either have to dribble before you start, or they're going to call traveling. But if you catch on a hop, now you can take the crossover step with your left foot, use a right hand or crossover step. So especially FIBA rules, the more I've coached um, in Europe. And then I also I tend to do some work with Canadian coaches, and they've all gone uh, FIBA, that, or they use FIBA rules now. Um, so I know they've gone to that teaching as well a lot for that reason. Um, in terms of shooting, um, again, if I'm working with a good shooter and they're a step-in shooter, I'm not going to change them. You know, um, if I'm working with a shooter who's a hop shooter, I'm not going to change them. Um, if I'm starting with a young player from the very beginning, I still tend to start with a step-in, um, but I I teach both, and then I let the player figure out which one they're more comfortable with.
Interesting, because, you know, I've kind of as a uh, proselytizer of the hop, I, I really feel like it, it is better. But I, I, I also I agree if it's if there's success with the one, two, then I, I wouldn't really want to get in the way of that. However, there are guys like Kobe. The, the, the anecdote that I've heard was that uh, he started hopping late in his career after he saw Kevin Durant use it so well. So which is also interesting because a, a guy like, um, you know, people in golf. They'll have no problem rebuilding their whole swing from scratch, right, in the middle of a career. And it seems so strange to me that at basketball, uh, and I've interacted with a lot of NBA guys, they will not touch their shot no matter what. Yeah. The, uh, the hop, hop one, two step story that I have is I work in Zagas camp um, back when Blake Step was there. And uh, they teach the hop, or at least at that time they, they taught the hop. And so they're teaching all the campers the hop. And then we went into the gym at lunchtime, and Blake Step was shooting. He was a step-in shooter. Mm-hmm. Step-in, step-in, step-in. And so I turned to, to one of the other Gonzaga players. I was like, if you guys, you know, if you're so adamant about the hop, how come, how come uh, you know, he's a step, a step-in shooter? I'm like, oh, he shoots so well, they're not going to mess with him. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what's funny about, about that also is that I spoke to a lot of D1 coaches and I'll, I'll watch a practice and I'll see two of their shooters have hitches in their shot, right? It's like violent. It's really kind of horrible to watch. And I would ask them, I said, well, do you, aren't, don't you want to kind of fix that? And they go, nope, we just try and give them as much confidence as we can that they, they'll, they'll make their shot. And I'm like, you're going to get fired. <laughs> you're not, your team isn't going to shoot as well as they can and you're going to lose games and then you're not going to have your job anymore all because you don't want to help the kid improve his mechanics. Very interesting take that I thought was was never really uh, I never fully followed. I get I get asked that question a lot, and and I know uh, I've seen quotes from very prominent national championship winning you know uh, college basketball coaches say yeah you know we don't change players' shots once they get here et cetera et cetera and and you know so people ask me well do you think you know once a player's seventeen or once a player's eighteen do you think you can change a player's shot I say yes. Because um, I worked, I worked with a player. Um, one of my other books, 180 Shooters, kind of based on what I did with one uh, with a player who I got when he was 18, 19 years old, when he was a freshman in college, um, and he went from being a horrible shooter, more or less, in high school, um, to eventually he was a 180 shooter his last two years of college at the D3 level. Um, you know, and and you know, it started started with our work he actually got lucky his freshman year of college he broke his wrist and so he couldn't do anything but stationary shoot and so he decided that his goal was to be a great shooter and so he worked out every day trying to make him into a great shooter um, and eventually and then he left and then took that on you know when he went on he transferred schools and when he went on and and you know built upon it each year um, so I've seen it happen that you know a college player can can change the shot. When when coaches ask me whether or not they should tinker with uh, a player's shot, I always ask them how dedicated the player is, because if the player is not 100% committed and 100% dedicated to it, then I wouldn't mess with the shot either, because then you're just going to get mixed results. Um, the the player has to buy in, and they have to put in the work because it's going to take time. And they have to realize they're going to probably get worse first before they get better. And so they have to have the mentality that can handle seeing their shot go down. Um, and not every player has that. And not every player has the desire, you know, as long as they're a pretty good player, you know, or they're getting minutes with their current shot, you know, it's like, all right, I'm, you know, I'm good enough, you know, which, you know, is one of, I think I got that quote from, uh, I think I got it from Dave Hopler. I don't know if he made it up or got it, but um, good is the enemy of great, you know. And and in a lot of respects with shooting, that's um, I think that's what happens. Is well, you know, I'm I'm getting minutes. I'm good enough. Plus, I, I I'll tell this story too. I wrote a blog about this one. Um, I help a little bit with the local college here, and I saw a, a, a girl or a female player in the fall. Um, shooting, and I was like, you know, I knew their team wasn't very good last year. I was like, what did you shoot from the three-point line last year? She's like, 14%. I was like, how are you that bad of a shooter? I was like, your shot's not that bad. She's like, I'm like, what's your goal this year? She's like, 40%. And, you know, most people would be like, oh, 
going 14% to 40%. She must have totally reconstructed her shot, spent every day in the gym changing everything. She ended up, she just missed, I think she ended up 37% for the year. Um, but she also had some injuries in the, in the last part of the year that might, may or may not have affected her overall percentage. But so she, you know, she improved by at least, what, 23% and did nothing to change her shooting technique. It still has, if there's still flaws to her shot, she she's really doesn't shoot with great balance. She's not a very well put together athlete. Um, you know, so she has some kind of rhythm and issues in there, but improved 23%. And for the most part, the entire uh, growth or improvement is due to her coach last year taking away all her confidence and her coach, a new coach this year, giving her all the confidence. And it made that much of a difference that with the same exact shooting, just a little bit more confidence, not getting ripped out of the game when she misses shots, etc., she improved that much. That, you know, okay. I mean, yeah, I, I think a lot of times we talk about confidence and how it might be a red herring uh, when you're talking about, uh, you know, it, 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 there is a mechanical flaw. But I, I think at certain levels, there's no question that that confidence is it, it weighs even more. Because I think when you get to the college level or pro level, there is no confidence issue, I don't think. I mean, these guys really believe in themselves. I mean, they're certainly not going to let you have any inkling that they don't feel 100,000% confident that they're a great shooter at all times. And I talked to some guys who are some really streaky at best shooters who, you know, I would say to them, I said, don't you want to make like 8 million bucks a year and shoot 40% from three? And they're like, uh, just whatever you want to do, just don't touch my shot. I'm like, oh, okay, you know, you're going to shoot 34% and you're going to make four one night and then miss 12 in a row over the next three games. That's not going to get you anywhere. Um, but that's actually fascinating. I tortured a lot of my kids. I had kids who came in, they'd shoot sort of in front of their face you know, low. And yeah. I was always like, nope, you're going to have to, if you want to play varsity for me, it's going to have to be up here in a normal position above your eyebrow ridge. And, uh, and I, I would tend toes to the rim elbow when I, I would like, I'd be stretching their, their, um, their, their wrists and I'd be like pulling and yanking. And some of the guys who never quite got it at the very least, they did become better shooters because it, it sort of forced them to shoot a lot of shots, uh, yeah. even the way they were doing it. So they got more practice and they got better at that shot. Um, but then I saw Steve Nash in person. Have you seen Have you seen Steve Nash up close shooting the basketball? No, just well, the video. Well, when you see him up close at the at the level, he literally is shooting it. The ball's in front of his face like a little kid. Yeah. And I'm like, if Steve Nash, and by the way, 180 shooter is 50, 40, 90, right? I taught math in high school. Is that what that is? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good. He's a 50, 40, 90 multiple times, I believe. And he's shooting it at a short stature against really tall players, and his shot doesn't get blocked. So I thought, you know what? If I get some of the other things with the, with the balance you mentioned and maybe the feet alignment and the hip, I, I, don't, I would never, I don't think anymore, force a kid to raise his shot and get that up, elbow up higher. I wouldn't force it for him. If he's, you know, he's on his own, and I feel like I, I feel terrible. There were players that I did that to over the years, and until I saw Steve Nash do it, I realized that, again, I don't think we need to shoot it from that high. No, my, I worked, I did a clinic in Detroit in October, and a dad was there with his daughter. His daughter, I think she was a junior in high school, and great shooter, like over 40% three-point shooter, um, really nice shot, but she shot it from about right here. He's like, I, I think we're going to spend this year trying to raise our shot. I'm like, <laughs> no. I'm like, why? Like, so she can shoot 41%? Like, Right. She's an over 40% shooter. I was like, he's like, but I don't know if she'll be able to get her shot off. I'm like, how many contested three-point three shots do you want her to take? I was like, so maybe, you know, shooting here, she shoots one less shot every two games because she can't get it off. I was like, I'd rather have a 40% shooter from three-point range that takes one less shot every two games than a 34% three-point shooter who can get that extra shot. Oh, yeah. You know? So yeah. I just, I'm the same way. I, I, I'm... For three-point, I just think for – but the same respect, I had a kid last year, uh, my youngest player on my team in Denmark, and he shoots the ball from here. Mm -hmm. And so the first week, uh, the first week I was there, I was like, you need to lower, you need to bring that down in front. 
And then I started, he, kid, he was a 40% three-point shooter. I finally said, screw it, shoot how you want. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, look at Dirk. Dirk shoots that way, too. Uh, you know, so there are, so this, I got less concerned about this as much as the lower body part and, and the rhythm and the dip and all those things because I felt like we got, we got the same kind of results and, and allowed that player to sort of be who he was. You know, and it's just so funny now we're talking about threes and how important it is because I was a 50% three-point shooter in high school. The, the three-point line came in, in in my sophomore year of high school, and uh, I, I worked on it. And I had there was, there was no shot doctors. There was nobody who understood the, 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 the things. I would read books. I was that kid who would, like, read every book. or They didn't have YouTube. I, I, I would find a VHS tape if I could and somehow figure it out. And I probably shot it from, like, the side here to heave it a little bit. But um, all I can say now is I'm on Twitter talking about this is, I'm watching these kids dribble and pull up on the break from three. And I probably took, I shot 50%. I probably took maybe three shot, three threes a game, right? And that was the most of any we ever took in a game. Maybe three and a half, right? Can, I can't even imagine what would, because, you know, you know what would, what would have happened if you or I had taken that shot in the game, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, we wouldn't have played for a quarter. Yeah. But can you imagine if you, and then going back to the, to the confidence thing, if, if I had a coach who said, we're going to do a drill today and every day our warm-up is going to be, we're going to outlet you the ball and you're going to triple to the top of the key or the, or the wing and pull up and shoot it. I mean, that is amazing to me because also the thing that people forget is that you can get the offensive rebound a lot of times easier as you're running in, especially if you're small. We just did a breakdown of how to beat Kentucky. And I said, the only way you can beat Kentucky, because you're going to get beat, right? That's the whole thing. I used to be that coach who had those teams against the teams that were as good as Kentucky on on the high school level, and we would slow it down, and you'd make the kids really um, timid, and they would be scared. We're trying to limit the possessions because that's what you're supposed to do when you're playing against a better team. Gosh darn it, I apologize. If anyone's listening from those teams right now, I apologize a million times. We should have just spread it five out and let it fly because you know what? We got beat by 25 anyway. 30, yeah. right? What's the difference? So we get beat by 25 or 50, at least you're giving yourself a chance, right, to make those shots and maybe be in the game. Yeah. I remember um, talking about high school. My freshman year of high school, we came out our first game. The other team was in a zone. Second possession, I took a three-pointer right out of the game. Oh, really? Yep. I oh. was, and that, that's how our season went. It was, you know, and after that game, our coach instituted the five-pass rule. We were never allowed to shoot before we made five passes. And just he, he took a bunch of kids who in eighth grade were good shooters and made us a bad shooting team. Oh, I know. Yeah, once you start thinking about it in that respect, yeah, it starts creeping. And I, I, same thing happened. I remember I had a, a few threes in a game. We were up. I don't think we were blowing them out by like 30. We were probably up by 15, whatever, in the fourth quarter. And, you know, the ball swung, and it swung back to me against the zone. Nobody rotated. And I shot the ball, and he yanked me right away. And I remember, like, you know, a couple of kids like, hey, that was a good shot. But it was like, this is the problem is, is when we have those guys. Now, I've seen the flip side where certain coaches um, get to the point where they're just taking bad shots. And I, yeah. I kind of respect the notion of giving your players so much confidence they could feel like they could shoot it, uh, you know, freely like that. But I've seen the, the opposite where it's just like he's just he's, he's either selfish, he's just tossing up bad shots that have no chance to go in. Uh, and that could get a little bit frustrating. I guess there's a balance you need to that's, – I guess that's what coaching is, right? Yeah. I th- yeah, I think that's where, as a coach, you have to teach what shot selection you want. You know, not in a limiting factor, but in a, you know, in a, you know, positive, look, if we share the ball, if we get one more reversal, we can take a good shot to a great shot, you know, to use the Spurs, you know, saying that everybody has latched onto, you know, we don't want to just, you know, you know, my teams, you know, we want to play fast, we want to get a good early shot, but if we can make one more pass or that second penetration into the lane and then kick out to a wide open shooter, you know, that's a better shot. That's what we want as opposed to, you know, taking, you know, a semi-good shot or a semi-contested shot or a pull-up off the dribble or, you know, is that. And part of that is also as players get older, they learn what their strengths and weaknesses are, you know, and, and coaches can also help with that. You know, hey, you know, you shoot well from here but not from here. Shoot it from here, you know, you know um, kind of thing. Uh, uh, 
so I think I think the point of the, our conversation even right now is the notion of you know you, there's a constant evolution of the game and a constant you constantly need to be looking at how you can change or improve ways of coaching, although. A lot of the things that we're talking about that work are the throwbacks from the original fundamentals of the game, which is really kind of fascinating. I, a real, another quick anecdote I just want to share, it's kind of funny, is I was coaching my kid, my son, seven-year-old team. And we, had, we were bigger than a lot of the other teams, right? And so I started to encourage them. I said, you know, the more shots you take, even if it's from the outside, we're going to probably get like half of those rebounds, and then you're gonna be, you'll be a lot much closer to make it, right? So that was all I had said. Well, in this league, you can't defend until they cross the, this blue line that's about 12 feet from the hoop, right? And which is a pretty far shot, I guess, for the seven, six and seven, or actually it's the five and six. These guys are all six and a half. And um, so they started to shoot from behind the line, right? Because no one could guard them. And, yeah. and uh, you know, obviously we got some of the rebounds, but they started making these shots. And the other coaches started screaming and yelling, uh, storming on the court saying, it's illegal, you can't do that. And we're like, well, of course you can. So the funny thing was, is I got all the credit for like, for like coaching this when yeah. I didn't think about it at all. I, I didn't think about the behind the blue line, certainly. Yeah. But you can be damn well sure that next practice, we were in those lines and we were practicing <laughs> shooting those shots. And then for the rest of the season, it was like people, it was like uh, they were making them and people were like, you know, the crowds were cheering. It was a really fun experience and there was nothing defense could do, but all because I watched the kids do it, right? I, that's, they taught me something that we could do that I wouldn't have thought about before. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. So uh, let's, let's wrap this up, I think, by talking about the la one other chapter in your book is you talk about the three-man weave. And that sort of antiquated warm-up that everybody does, along with some other things that you mentioned in the book. Um, and I always scratch my head thinking, there, what is the practical application? Now, that said, I, I know that you know that there are some arguments out there that I'm sure coaches will say, oh, it does this, this, and this, and it's useful. So give us some insight into that and how you feel like, you know, is that, are those valid points? And, or what are those points, and are they valid? I think there are two valid reasons to use a drill like the three-man weave. Um, and I should say the big thing that I try to get across in the book isn't so much the specific drills not to use or whether you use them or what to use instead, but the idea, one, of that aspect of critical thinking, but also knowing why you use the drill. So if you use the, the three-man weave because, well, everybody else does it, that's stupid to me. you know. But if you use, I think the three-man weave if you want to do on-court conditioning and you want to put a time limit up and you have to do it down and back or you have to make so many layups, you know, instead of just running sprints on the court, you know, so you get a little bit of touching the basketball and layups and stuff like that, I can see that as one reason to use a drill like the three-man weave. That's what when I was playing – actually, when I coached in Sweden, um, I practiced with the men's team and – we do that for 15 or 20 minutes of practice, and that was our conditioning. Is we just do different forms of three-man weave, you know, and each time uh, there'd be, you know, we wouldn't just do the three-man weave. You know, sometimes it would be a wide three-man weave. Sometimes it'd be narrow. Sometimes we'd have to catch and pass while we were in the air. I mean, they're always he was always adding different things to a simple drill. Um, the second reason I can see, or the second argument that I can see for using it is coordination. Um, you know, with younger, younger children, just general coordination, being able to catch while running and pass without traveling. Um, but I think for me, the only reason I would use a three-man weave would be as a conditioning element. Um, my problem with the three-man weave is, as you said, like, I just, I don't, I just think it's a time waster. I, I, I just don't think you get anything out of it. I don't think it teaches passing, which is supposedly what it's there for. Um, I don't think it teaches the fast break because when I ask coaches, okay, so you run the three-man weave, so you have your post, get the rebound, outlet it to a wing, and then you have him run run the wing. Oh, no, 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 our post rebounds and runs the middle of the court. Well, then why do you teach him to run outside every time? And then, uh, you know, but in terms of passing, like I, I helped out with a couple of uh, junior high practices when I was writing the book, and, you know, in – whatever, 10 minutes or whatever, you know, kids basically make one and a half passes up and down the court, you know, depending on whether they start with the ball or they're the third person to touch it. Um, 
And so, you know, there were 30 kids at this practice because it was, you know, two junior high teams. So in 30 minutes of doing up and down, three-man weaves, kids literally got like one pass a minute, maybe one and a half passes a minute. I was like, it's ludicrous. You know, you could do a small drill with five different groups, you know, like I play a lot of keep away. So you could use a keep away game with four or five and you get tons of passes plus all those passes are defended. You know, three-man weaves you're throwing, you know, and the coach the whole time, all he cared about was that they were thumbs down on their chest pass. I was like, that's great, except for I get them in a scrimmage and they can't complete a pass because now there's a defensive player there and they don't know what to do. So to me, and this is another kind of big theme in the book, is the drill uh, does not contain the constraints of the game. And so to me, to have something transfer from practice to the game, I want the constraints that are going to be there in the game situation. So there's you know, a couple situations where you're going to make that pass on a fast break, um, you know, or you, know, you get a steal and your man's leaking ahead and you're going to make a long pass you know, that is a similar pass to the three-man weave. But for the most part, most passes and most turnovers occur because there's defense there. And so I want my, my passing practice to incorporate defense because that's the element that's going to be the hardest for a young player to handle. Well, this is all terrific stuff, and I can't encourage uh, coaches out there to go find your book, Fake Fundamentals, and get it right away. Download it. I got it from the Amazon store. Where else can you get it? Uh, it's available on Amazon. It's also available on my website, 180shooter.com, numerals 180, and then shooter.com. Okay, great. So definitely try and find it and, and read it. It's a, it's a nice quick read, and it has an addendum that actually describes the drills in detail if you want to impl- implement what he's talking about because they're great drills. Again, I think the, the focus here is when you're drilling basketball, you want to be able to simulate the game as much as possible. Would that be accurate? Yeah, for yeah. the most part. Yeah, exactly. And, I, and, I, and I've always wondered, all these drills that we've ran all these years, and, when, and, and everything you spoke to uh, just, just now is exactly those questions I've always had. And there's probably a lot of coaches out there that have had that same feeling. So uh, thanks for coming on. You're going to have to come on again. We have to do another round of a whole bunch of other things as well, I'm sure. But there's, there's so many things to talk about. But uh, you'll, I'm sure we'll have you back on. And maybe we'll even get you on the court to do a couple on-court demos at some point. Yeah, sure. That'd be great. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Brian. And uh, don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel. We're a conversation. You in? You in, Brian? Oh, I'm in, Coach. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like, breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you love the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG V20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win twenty-five grand. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participating stores.